Father, we thank you that you've brought us together today, that you have done a work in our hearts and lives to bring us to salvation. And we ask, Father, that this morning you would speak to us, not because we deserve anything, Lord, but because you have called us together. Lord, I just ask that we would leave today with a deeper appreciation for what you did for us on the cross and a greater love for one another. I ask, Father, that your words would be all that is said today, that your spirit would anoint my words and the hearts of your people, just as you have spoken to me in preparation. I thank you, Lord, for this, and we trust that you will be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want us to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and Brother John actually did a message on this passage, so I would highly recommend re-listening to that, but when I was thinking about this message, I'm like, it's not been that long ago that was preached out of this, but my I couldn't get it off my mind, so uh, that's where we're going to be today. So uh, we'll start in verse, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one, of, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he break it, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would be, not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So this passage is used constantly for the Lord's Supper, and that's the theme of today's message. And like I said, John had not too long ago preached a sermon on this, but I wanted to take a little bit different perspective and I want us to see what the Old Testament says, what, how it points to this supper. 
and help us to see the significance of the Lord's Supper. So if you'll turn with me first to Genesis chapter 22. We all know this story. It's not anything new. I kind of alluded to this in a, a message a while back. but So Genesis 22, it's the story of Abraham. He's told to take Isaac. He's told to take no sacrifice, just wood, and go a long journey to sacrifice Isaac. And not only does Abraham obey, but he gets up early in the morning. He chops his own wood for the sacrifice. He loads it on the donkey. Then him, Isaac, and their servants take off. And when they get close to the mountain, in verse 5, Genesis 22, Abraham says to the young men that are with him, Stay here with the donkey, and I, the la- I and the, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. This is faith speaking, because how could he say we will worship and return to you if he didn't believe that Isaac was coming back with him? So Abraham knew, believed God, and we know this from Hebrews that he, it says that he believed that God would raise him up if he had to sacrifice him. Because he knew the promise. We all know the story leading up to this. Isaac had been told that, or sorry, Abraham had been told that Isaac was the child of promise. That through him, the nations would be blessed through Isaac. And yet, here God is telling him, he's testing him, to see where his allegiance lie. So he takes him to and follows God's plan. And so they go up to the mountain. They're going up the mountain in verse 8 or verse 7. Isaac, you know, he's not dull. He's a, he's a smart kid. And likely he's probably late teens, early 20s. So Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It's a pretty good question. Why, why do you think he was asking that question? Because Isaac had seen his father sacrifice lambs before. He already knew the process, so it wasn't like he was the first time he had gone to sacrifice with his father. So he's like, Where's the lamb? And and Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they walked on together. So, verse 9, they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and ranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I think it's interesting. Isaac here, he wasn't fighting I'm sure he was much stronger than his 100-plus-year-old father. Um, No offense to those who are getting older, but as you get older, as I have realized, I get weaker. (laughs) So we have to become wiser (laughs) uh, and endure. But 
So Isaac willingly allowed his father to bind him and put him on the sacrifice. He didn't fight it. He did it willingly. I think this points to something. Then Abraham, verse 10, stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. In verse 12, he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So it's, it's interesting. Isaac was not his only son, because we know about Ishmael. But what he is saying is the only son that I have promised He's the only son you're going to have. He is the son of promise. And I know that you fear me because you have not held on to that. And then, verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes, looked, and behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. I don't think that ram was there the whole time. I'm pretty sure Abraham would have seen it (laughs) with the love that he had for his son. But God brought a perfect lamb, spotless lamb, to take the place of Isaac. And it's interesting, again, the parallels. This is all pointing to, of course, Christ. Pointing to the son who willingly laid down his life at the the will of the Father. And so, I think this is the beginning of sacrifices that we see that point specifically in our prophecy of something greater that is coming in Jesus Christ. And then, in this case, the Lamb took the place of one son. Okay. Exodus 12. So we've got that story. So Exodus 12, Egypt has gone through years, well, I, I don't know, days, sorry, days of uh, plagues, and then prior to the last day, when God is going to send the angel of death, He gives a way of escape for the firstborn of Israel, of every family. And so we have the Passover lamb. And God called for the people to kill the lamb and eat every bit of it before the night and use its blood to cover the doorpost. And this wasn't just any lamb. This lamb had to actually be in the house with them leading up to this time. So you can imagine... I mean, this, I think of Genesis 22, uh, Exodus 12, and uh, what we're going to see as well, and then, of course, Christ on the cross. These are displays of, I mean, they're just, no one likes this kind of violence. Why would we want to see blood shed? Why do we want to see this? But it's a picture to us of how, wicked we were without Christ, how 
much we needed Christ and how our sin had such a strong and I can't think of the word just it was just disgusting before God and that is for the lack of better words this is a grotesque vision for us of how ugly our sin is how wicked before God our sin has come and so the Passover lamb is given and it says here in verse 5 Exodus 12 verse 5 and this is really important your lamb shall be unblemished and a year old you may take it from the sheep or from the goats And then further down in verse 13, The blood shall be a sign for you on the house in which you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this was the final plague. It was the plague that God used to free Israel, and it's a plague that was marked for the Israelites by Passover, which, for all of us who don't remember, was to be uh, observed every year from that day forward. And if you didn't realize, it's still observed today in uh, Jewish homes. And they, they say today, in expectation... The Passover has always been about the Messiah coming. It has never been just about the past. God always, if you see in the Old Testament, when God institutes a day that's set aside, it's always pointing to Christ. Whether it's the Day of Atonement, which we're going to talk about just shortly here in a a minute, or the Passover, or the booths, Everything is pointing directly to Christ. And so, Jews today still say, on Passover, they say, as they're eating, they'll say, this year in the land, or this this year here, next year in the land of Israel. This year bondsmen, next year free. They still say this. Why? Because they haven't seen the freedom we have in Christ One day their eyes will be opened and they will see that Jesus fulfilled everything that the Passover pointed to. There's not a single rabbi, except maybe an extremely liberal one, who would say the Passover doesn't point to Christ. And even the the most liberal uh, would say this is pointing to the Messiah and the Messiah is going to be so much greater. And that's the point I'm trying to make at this point. So, with Isaac, we have one lamb for one son. With Passover, we have one lamb for every firstborn son in one family. So, it's essentially one lamb per family. Okay? And then if we look in Leviticus 16... Last time I preached, I preached on this passage, so we're not going to talk too much about this, but Leviticus 16, 
7 through 10 says, This is the Day of Atonement. He shall take the two goats and present them before, before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So what's the whole picture here? We have two goats. One gets the lot of the Lord. It's sacrificed. And then the sins of all the people are laying on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat is going outside of the camp. Why is that? Because if sin was in the camp, God left the camp. If sin was in the perimeter of God's people, He would go away. That, that was his, his, uh, what He had said. That's the whole purpose of the scapegoat to take the sin of the people yearly outside of the camp. But as we know, Hebrews clearly teaches us that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. It's not enough. It was all a picture. The whole sacrificial system is pointing to the one sacrifice that will be worthwhile. And so on the Day of Atonement... Again, Isaac, one lamb, one son. Passover, one lamb for all one family. And then in the Day of Atonement, it's one lamb for an entire nation. And at this time, most people think there were over two million people. Can you see the buildup or escalation that's happening here? It's like the closer we get to Christ the greater the sacrifice points to Him. So what happens with Christ? So that's the Old Testament picture that we see to what's happening with Christ. I want to stop on the way to the New Testament in Isaiah 53. We all know this passage, and I'm going to read most of it. Who has believed our message, or who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression, and crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." Or stripes. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 
He was oppressed and was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, that he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. How is that possible? Putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of his anguish of soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet... He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So I ended up reading it all because it's such a great passage. It points again. So the escalation that I've talked about or the building up to Christ, it just gets greater. And in the end, Christ died for the sins of all who will believe. There's not a single person who has believed in Christ that Christ did not die for. And so, it goes from one man to one family to one nation to all people. How do we know that? Matthew chapter 28. I know this is a a quick overview, but I think it's important for us to see the picture leading up to Passover and leading up to the coming of Christ on this. So, Matthew chapter 28, 18. We all know this, but it's good to remember. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of some nations is that is that the right word no it says all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i commanded you lo i am with you always even to the end of the age i mean can you see the day of atonement was just minuscule in a in this manner that we see Christ died. He came for all nations to, to bring forth, if we'll look in Revelation chapter 20, there's a verse in, in Revelation that talks about how God has brought all the nations, people from every nation, tribe and tongue, to be saints, and it might actually be in, in chapter 6 or 7. But uh, 
So we see this build-up that God had a purpose. It started with one man and his son. And then it extended to each family of that line. And then it extended to an entire nation. And finally, it's to all people. That's, it's the return to Eden, if we think about it. Because in Eden, the only men on earth were serving God. And then sin entered the world. And God has a purpose in that. So, I think it's important, again, to see the history of these, this move towards Christ being the fulfillment before we even think about what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. Because if we don't see the value of the body and the blood of Christ, then why are we going to see the value in the Lord's Supper? Or see the importance of what Paul and uh, three of the apostles, or three of the epistle, or uh, three of the gospels have the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's interesting, historically speaking, if you think about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, it's the only time that he was the head of the table. So every Passover table has a head. Typically, it's the father of the home. It's still done this way. The father or the grandfather, whoever the patriarch of the family, um, would be the one who said the blessing, distributed the food, and did the, the formal part of it. Well, if you think of the ministry of Christ, before he started his ministry, who's, who was the head of the home? His father, Joseph. When he starts his ministry, we know he, he may have went during Passover, but he was probably sitting at someone else's table. The second year, it says that he was in Galilee, so he wasn't in Jerusalem, which is where you would have done the Passover. And then third, this is the first time that Christ is the head of the table. It's the first time that Christ serves as the head of the table to offer the sacrificial lamb of Passover. And he offers himself, his own blood, his own body, is what he's pointing to. And I think that's extremely important for us to see that Christ, up to that point, he hadn't been the head of the table, but the, the, before he was betrayed, he was the head of the table. And he preceded it with washing of feet. He did what no other head of the table would have ever done. That was the servant's job to go and wash the feet. They, they had all their ritual washings for the Passover, but like hand washing, but um, the servant would have been asked to wash the feet when they came in the door. But Christ, he set an example that we should all remember that humility, servant, being a servant is what God has called us to. So now we're back in 1 Corinthians 11. I think this, again, I want us to see all this because I think it really, it, it shows the importance of the Lord's Supper 
and why it is so important for us to to take it um, as he has shown us to do. So he, here in 1 Corinthians 11, we remember in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, Paul is dealing with issues where people are trying to say, well, Apollos is better, Paul's better, da-da-da, Timothy, whoever. We, we're following these men, and Paul has dealt with that up to this point. So there were divisions among them over who should be leading. And then here in verse 17, well, he starts in chapter 10, he talks about um, quite a bit about leading up to this. And I want to read that, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we will partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do you provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? So, he's prefaced this in chapter 10, and then he comes back to it, in chapter 11, verse 17. So he's saying, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. He's like, I have so many issues with you all. And and the first one he says is, Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. When you get together, it's to fight or to have issues. So this church has issues when they come together. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. So, he's saying the first problem is, when you come together, you're fighting over who you're going to follow. You're fighting over uh, who's better. There's divisions in the church. And then he says in verse 19, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are proved may become evident among you. So we should not be surprised if there are divisions. Because Paul says here, there will always be divisions in the church. That's why there is no perfect church. Because there are wheat and tares together. Always. And when the Lord comes, we all know... The, the symbolism that he gives us that when he comes, he will have his angels collect the tares and throw them in the fire. So just because someone steps into the door of a church doesn't make them a Christian. As Keith Green liked to say, just because you go to McDonald's, that doesn't make you a hamburger. Um, where we go doesn't make us a Christian or not a Christian. It's how we live and our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
So in verse 2, he, he, or 20, he throws, I mean, this is, to me, this language that he uses is pretty strong. Therefore, when, we, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying, you're not eating the Lord's Supper, you're doing something else. This isn't for the Lord, this is for yourself. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So what's happening here? From the commentaries that I've read, what was happening is a lot of the, the wealthy, they would get off work earlier. So they typically ate earlier. So they would come to the meeting house and start eating and drinking before the poorer members of the body came. So by the time the poorer members got there, they'd been working all day, had no chance to eat, and they had eaten and had been drunk, and there was little left over for the people who had just got there. Because they did come together um, to fellowship. But the problem was the wealthy who had got there before were eating and drinking to their full and probably gluttony. And again, the poor were not able to come in and eat. In verse 22, he said, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So he's saying, look, you can eat and drink in your houses a little bit before you come. You don't have to come here and eat and have your plenty and then all your brothers and sisters are going hungry. You're not sharing in the supper of the Lord because in this time... As with Passover today, there is a full meal that comes before all the formal part of the meal. In the time of Christ, they would have eaten that lamb. They would have had a full meal before they participated in the, this, what the Lord instituted as the Lord's Supper. In the same way, in the time of the Corinthians, there would have been a love feast before the the Lord's Supper. So then Paul, verse 23, he recounts what the Lord has shown him. He says, For I received from the Lord. That's very important because we know that Christ was not on the earth in physical form when Paul was brought to, brought to Christ in salvation. I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you. So he's saying, you know this story, it's not the first time. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what's the first, most elemental part of the Lord's Supper? It's the bread. What does it signify? It signifies, as he says here, the body of Christ. And that it was broken for us, pierced for us. All that is entailed in the body of Christ. And when we think about that, he was not just broken, but it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
18, we'll turn back there real quick. So 1 Peter 1. Eighteen and nineteen. I'll start in seventeen. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to one's works, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb without spot or blemish, the blood of Christ. I think it's interesting. Peter here also points to, if you go further down to verse 22 of this same passage, he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And Paul's getting at that. That is the whole purpose, I believe, of what Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians. And that's what uh, Brother John had, had showed in his message, that this is about love for one another. And uh, so, anyways, we have, again, Christ is compared countless times in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the Lamb, the spotless Lamb, the Passover Lamb, he is the fulfillment of Passover. That's why we don't do the Passover anymore. We now do the Lord's Supper because He fulfilled everything that the Old Testament said about the Passover lamb because He was the true Passover lamb. So the, the body of Christ which the bread represents, it endured the wrath and shame that we rightly deserved. And it carried, he carried it for us. So I thought when Miss Hale shared what she had to say, I thought it was something that we needed to hear that what Christ has done for us there was nothing we could add to it. Nothing we could take away from it. But God in His grace sent His Son who willingly died just like Isaac. He willingly died for us. The Father had the plan. The Son obeyed. And today we stand here redeemed by the body and blood of Christ. And so verse 23, 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what's the cup? Often juice, wine, water and wine typically was the mix fruit of the vine. That's, that's what it was about. Why? It looked like blood. It was a representation, just like the bread of the body. So the juice represents His blood and is, is to remind us of the covenant that was secured with God for us by Christ on the cross.
It should remind us of the covenant. And I think this is really, really important. It didn't just bring us forgiveness of sins, which that is incredible. It did. But it didn't just bring us out of the world. It didn't just save us from sin. It put us in a body of Christ. And that's the whole point of what Paul is saying in chapter 11, I believe. We aren't just saved from the world to be solo people. We need the body. God put us in the body for His purpose and for our growth. We can't be sharpened one to the, uh, the other if we're not in a body. If Christ is the head and we're in that body, we will be helping one another, growing together, and drawing closer to Him. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which local body we're in. We have to be in a body of Christ. We don't have an option. God did not, again, bring us out of the world, covenant us to Himself without covenanting us, covenanting us to a body of believers. When we say, I am a member of a church, we are covenanting, covenanting one with the other. I am here, so as an example, I am here, I'm covenanting with, covenanting with Thomas to keep him accountable, to encourage him, exhort him. And I think that's really important because in Hebrews chapter uh, 3, at the end, he gives exhortation one to another as a reason or a means of keeping us from becoming hard in heart. I think uh, Caleb and Joshua were probably good buddies because there was no one else that wanted to trust God in their generation. They probably had a lot of uh, conversations and relationship in those 40 years in the desert. Because there was no one else. Can you imagine? Out of 1.5 to 2 million people, there was no one that wanted to trust God but two men? Like it was you, if you were uh, Joshua, there was only Caleb to hang out with. I mean, that's hard. That's really hard. Anyways, that's a side, side note. But I believe that the blood, it, it's not just covenanting us, covenanting us to, to Christ, but it's covenanting, covenanting us to His body, His church. And so, whether that is this place, not a place, but it, this group of people, or where, the church that you attend, it doesn't matter. We are called to be a part of that body. To build each other up. And not like what the Corinthians are doing here. What are they doing? They're, tearing, they're making the, the poor feel less than because they're all eating and partying. They get there and they're like, uh, where's the fried chicken? Uh, sorry, you know it always goes first. Or where's the biscuits? <laughs> Man, the jam was so good, we, we ran out of the biscuits. I know that I'm putting this in southern uh, language here, but we all understand that. Um, you know, fried chicken's not going to last for long. But that's the thing. I, our relationship with one another is about being covenanted or in that relationship and saying, I am here. I am a part of this body and I will stay in this body until God says otherwise. And that, that is 
the thing that I think this generation has, has lost a, a picture of. That not that we can't go somewhere else. I don't, I don't believe that. But it must be God sending us, not um, opinions or, or feelings alone. We seek God. We cry after God. Again, it's a side note, but I think it's a big part of what Paul is talking about here. So, we have the body which is represented by the bread and, and the, the juice or wine. The fruit of the vine represents the blood of Christ. And then in verse 26 he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So it not only signifies the blood and the bread, but it also signifies the death of Christ as that spotless lamb, as the Passover lamb. He took our place. He took our punishment upon Him. And that's why He says in verse 26 that it proclaims the Lord's death until He comes. So when we take the blood or the cup and the bread, we are remembering what Christ did for us. It's, it's, it should be done in reverence, but it should be joyful. Why? Because it also proclaims by implication, His victory over sin and death in our lives. Because not a single one of us who is a believing Christian here today would be here without the work of Christ on the cross. I know where I would be. I would be in sin. I would be living the way I want to, completely. I would be a hardcore sinner. I promise you that. You all would not want to be around me if God had not saved me from my sin. I wouldn't want to be around me. I, I don't think any of us who have been saved from our sin wanted to be around us uh, for any amount of time. So in verse 27, This is why the Lord's Supper is so important. Therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. It's as though when we participate in an unworthy manner, what are we doing? We're trampling the Lord's body and blood underfoot. And I think this verse gets so construed this verse 27, I think, and I, I want to be careful with how I say this. I think John addressed this when he had shared. Unworthy manner, it's a, the way in which we participate. It's not who we are. Because how many here are worthy to receive the blood and body of Christ? Okay, no hands going up for those watching. Why? We were wicked. I, one of my professors, he said, my people were uh, Scottish Highlandsmen, and not a, they would when they would offer the the uh, the Lord's Supper, no one would come forward because they say we're all unworthy. We don't deserve to receive the blood and body of Christ. 
But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about unworthy participation. Just what Paul has been talking about. You're not taking into account the body of Christ. And he's not talking about the physical body of Christ. He's talking about the church. And we see that verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What body? I believe he's talking about the church here. I don't think a popcorn prayer 15 seconds before you take the Lord's Supper is God's method of cleansing, making sure you're free from sin. We should be confessing and repenting of sin at the moment of conviction and not searching to see if there's sin five seconds before communion. So I think what Paul is saying here is if you are judging the body incorrectly, so if there is a brother or sister or even a family in the body that you have a problem with, you need to deal with that before you take the bread. You need to deal with that before you take the cup. Because this is has led to judgment for many. It says in verse 30, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. Again, this is a sandwich in between all that we have talked about. He goes back to the issue of them not eating, saving, and waiting for the others to come before they ate together. The Lord's Supper is meant to be shared in the body. And I believe, I know this is not how we do it here, or haven't done it in the past, but maybe something we should think about. I think a full loaf is a great representation and way of doing communion because it's a whole unit. And I know, for convenience sakes, we have for a long time done the little squares, um, but I would be, I think scripturally it, it's a better representation to us that we're all coming and taking from the same loaf of bread. I know, I'm, again, I'm not, this is where I am. If you come to that conclusion, great. Um, and even one cup, not that we all drink out of the same cup, but you can do the, the, the dip thing, because that's what they did in, uh, in the Passover. Remember, Jesus, John whispered in Jesus' ear, who is the traitor? And he said, who I dip my cup with and give to is him. So he took the bread, dipped it in the cup, and handed it to Judas, who was next to him. So kind of a, a picture there. But so the Apostle Paul throughout this passage is talking about the unity 
of the body. And that is a huge, huge uh, significance of the Lord's Supper. I think it's one that is uh, greatly underplayed in the church. And I say that because it's proclaiming and signifying the fellowship we have with Christ. And we should come to the Lord's Supper in humility, not despising others who have also been bought with the blood and body of Christ. If we do have anything against a brother or sister, then we should repent and seek forgiveness from them. And I think that's what this whole passage is about. Us having a good relationship, that loving relationship, that brotherly love one for another. And I wanted to read a couple quotes real quick here. Augustine said this about the Lord's Supper. One bread, what is that one bread? The one body which we, being many, are. Remember that bread is not made from one grain, but from many. But what, are, but what you can see and receive, what you are. So too with the wine, brothers and sisters, just remind yourselves what wine is made from. Many grapes hang in the bunch, but the juice of the grapes is poured together in one vessel. That too is how the Lord Christ signified us how He wished us to belong to Him, how He consecrated, and He uses the word sacrament, of our peace and unity on His table. So, I know that it's kind of convoluted the way He talks, but His whole point is, the bread is made up of many grains together, many ingredients together. I think uh, when Brother Neely came and he shared a message on this, it was a, I thought it was a really good message on the unity of the body. And the same thing, wine is not just one grape. The fruit of the vine is not just one grape. It's many grapes that are crushed together, and they're all in one cup. And so I believe more than anything that this is an area that we have missed. And I know John shared very similar things when he shared on this topic, this message, this passage, um, that this, the, the Lord's Supper should be unifying us, reminding us of what Christ did for every one of us, because not a single one of us could take the cup in a worthy manner without Christ's work in our hearts, without the work that God alone can do in us. And so when we come together and take, we look around and say, well, Mr. Lanham didn't deserve that, but God changed him. Mr. Andrea didn't deserve that, but God renewed him. And we look around and say, you know what? None of us deserve it. I didn't deserve to take the blood or take the Lord's Supper, but God in His grace transformed me, changed me, and has given me the right to be not only His child, but to take in this supper and also to be a part of this body or the body wherever you are that we are not called to be alone. That's never been the purpose of, of God, and uh, that's why it's so important. 
when we take the Lord's Supper to be reminded of it's God that brought us together because I'm just telling you, and I know some of you probably feel this way, you wouldn't want to be with me and I wouldn't want to be with you if Christ hadn't changed us. We're not, we, we don't come from similar backgrounds, many of us. We come from different places. God has brought us together. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we are signifying that God has founded and is the head of the church and has covenanted us to Himself and to each other. And I wanted to read one more quote here. It says, The Lord's Supper is a demonstration of allegiance by a believer to the church, by which he swears obedience to it, and as a memorial of the death of Christ, the event that gave birth to the church. By it, the Christian calls to mind what Christ did, as Christ said, I entrust to you a symbol of this my surrender and testament, to awaken in you the remembrance of me and my goodness to you, so that when you see this bread and this cup held forth in this memorial supper, you may remember me as delivering you, de- delivered, as delivered up for you, just as if you saw me before you as you see me now eating with you. So I do believe that by taking the Lord's Supper, we're showing our, our covenant relationship with the Lord and with each other. And um, that's one of the reasons it's been on my heart. Because I think uh, there's a lack of covenant to one another. And um, when I was struggling through, Lord, what is it that you want me to share today? This message kept coming up. And I'm like, Lord, but John preached on this message not too long, you know, again, a few months ago. And... um, So I pray that the Lord has encouraged us to think about the Lord's Supper um, and the unity that it should be bringing as we take it together. And uh, I know we're not taking it today, but um, just it's a good reminder. It's been a good reminder to me. I had a class this semester, so we actually talked about baptism and the Lord's Supper, and so these these themes have been really uh, uh, clear in my mind, and I pray that I've been able to communicate through the Word what uh, I believe the Lord has said.